This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Monday, August 14th. And today will be better than yesterday. I'm Sarah Lang, filling in for Buster Olney. Thanks so much again to Buster for having me fill in. Producing Premier Bristol, Connecticut, we have Sarah Abbott and Bruce Baldwin. How are you guys doing? Today is going to be better than yesterday because it's a Sarah Lang's takeover. Thank you. We're so, so excited. I mean, hey, it's always a great day when Sarah's with us. I mean, hey, we got two Sarahs, so it's, it's even better. But uh, but yeah, it's it's I'm just excited to be this. And hey, the Mets won last night, so yeah. it's always, always a good day for me. You got that Sunday night baseball win, that big inning against Braves. Huge, huge for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Very fun to watch for the first time in a little bit. But I mean, hey, we're here. We're good. Everything's happy. And today, instead of doing our usual routine, we're going to mix it up just a little bit and do a Sarah Lang's Baseball is the Best Top 3 Stories of the Weekend. So in honor of the numbers game, we're going to do like a little revised version of it. So Sarah, story number three. So number three has to be John Singleton. He has had quite the journey back to the majors, originally drafted by the Phillies, traded to the Astros and the Hunter Pencil, signed that big contract, five-year, $10 million, just before the Astros called him up to the bigs in June of 2014. Had some struggles on the field and also off the field with the multiple suspensions for marijuana use in 2018. He had a third field test, and the Astros released him. So he was out of organized baseball before he opened a gym in 2020 and got in shape. Promising stint in the Mexican League in 2021, minor league contract with the Brewers in 2022, roller coaster start to 2023, played for the Brewers for a bit, released when the club needed to free a spot, back to the Astros, and that brings us to Friday night. Singleton hits one high, hits one deep. Fair ball to three-run bomb it is. John Singleton hits his first big league home run in 2,935 days. And the Astros lead this game three to one. Number one on the season for the tank, John Singleton. That is very close to where he put that first ball, a three-run home run, followed by a two-run home run. Hello. John Singleton's return to Minute Maid Park for the first time in over eight years, and he's having a career day. So he went, as I mentioned, a bunch of days in between those home runs. It was eight years and 13 days. The longest by a position player since Rafael Belair went 10 years and 144 days between 1987 and 1997. But then he had that second home run. That is the longest span in MLB history between home runs among the players to then hit two in that same game where they snapped the drop. 
The previous longest was five years and 292 days. He caught up with reporters after the game. I don't know what to say. You know, it was a, it was a big moment, and I'm just glad I can help the team win. And you did it again in your next at bat. What made you ready for, for these pitches you hit out? I uh, kind of expected him to throw a slider, you know, uh, just kind of my game plan. I've been sticking to it, so, you know, I just, he threw it and I delivered. You had told me a couple days ago you were feeling really good at the plate. What do you think it is that has you going so well? Honestly, uh, you know, just mentally and physically being ready to hit every single pitch. You know, I, I treat every pitch as an at-bat, so that, that has a lot to do with it. You getting the start today, you got to tell me what it was like to, to come out here and start at first base at Minute Maid Park again. Definitely great. You know, somewhere I feel like home, so I'm, I'm definitely grateful and thankful. Can you believe it? Is it hard for you to believe at times? Yeah, it definitely is hard to believe, but, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful. Love here, Julian Morales, with a great interview, as always. Number two. Number two has to be Joey Bat. So there were a handful of different team uh, Hall of Fames, level of excellence, number of retirements over the weekend. We'll get to a few. We're going to start with Joey Bats, Jose Batista, uh, retiring with the Blue Jays, signing a one-day contract, and being elevated to their level of excellence. Once again, I want to thank everybody up here, uh, those of good, that couldn't be here as well. And I want to thank the Blue Jays fans, the city of Toronto, and the whole country. It was an honor to play for you. I want to thank the, the teams playing today. Um, thank you for your time. I know there's uh, important baseball to be played, and I don't want to delay it any further. So let's play ball. He was so emotional. He was so grateful. It was so wonderful to see, obviously, with Jose Batista and the Blue Jays, the first thing we think of is that bat flip in the playoffs against the Rangers, that very, very tenuous game. And he just set it off with that bat flip. So amazing, heard around the world. But he was a really, really good player for them. There was a time where, depending on what span you looked at, he had the most home runs in the majors over four-year span, five-year span. And again, he is also a bit of a redemption story in his own way and not the type of player we usually see ending up in uh, a level of excellence. He was a Rule 5 draft guy from the Pirates found his way to the Blue Jays and just meant so much to that community. Wonderful to see him on the field with uh, his daughters, his whole family. Number one. Number one has to be the king, Felix Hernandez. We elect new mayors, we elect new executives, governors and president, but there is only one king of the Seattle Mariners and of King County. It's now time to honor him. Will you please join me in welcoming the 11th member of the Seattle Mariners Hall of Fame, Felix Hernandez. Thank you. Thank you for this great honor. I'm proud and humble to be standing here joining this legendary group as the Hall of Famer. Many are here tonight. Thank you all for being here. You guys took a chance on me in 2002. Play out of Venezuela, just 16 years old. 
and you stood by my side ever since. And last, to the amazing Seattle fans, and the Kings Court. You are the greatest fan in the world. Thank you for all the support. I love you guys. So he was inducted into the Seattle Mariners Hall of Fame over the weekend. And it was just an amazing moment from start to finish. They had him sitting in the throne. I was watching Mariners Orioles all weekend. They were hyping up. They had turkey legs for the King's Court everything going and it's been a few years but i hope everybody remembers what a relationship he had with the fan base in seattle in 2013 a four-year-old girl by the name of sophia robinson was making regular trips from alaska to seattle for surgeries and treatments to combat a very rare heart condition when she was granted an opportunity by the make-a-wish foundation she knew exactly how she wanted to use it to meet Felix. After their first meeting, the two formed a very special bond, reuniting multiple times during Felix's time as a Mariner. Felix, it's been six years, but we have a very special guest who is here tonight and excited to reunite, reunite with you again. Join us from Alaska. Please welcome Felix's longtime friend, Sophia Robinson. Felix's good friend and former Mariner, Adrian Beltre. So just another example of how much he meant to those fans and how much the fans meant to him with that young woman, but also Adrian Beltre. That was a surprise, and that's why I wanted to make sure we had that in here. He was crying when he saw him. And he said on the uh, broadcast, they had him in the booth. They were away together in Dubai last month. And Beltre was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't make it, you know, scheduling. So Beltre really played him, which is just so perfectly them and that friendship. And I loved hearing that extra detail that he really nailed home the surprise. They were away on vacation last month and he had no idea. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how hard that would be to keep in. But the face that he made was pure shock. It was so sweet. So, so sweet. Sarah, what else you got? All right, Sarah. Well, today we finish up a recording with the Adam Schefter podcast. He had on Field Yates and Daniel Dopp giving you all the info on what you need to know heading into the fantasy draft. So be sure to check that out wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. 
Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkson. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. I'm so thrilled to be joined now by Tim Kirkjian. I love talking baseball with Tim any chance I get. And getting to do it here on Monday morning is absolutely wonderful. How are you, Tim? Um, well, Sarah, and if I may, many years ago, this little tiny girl came up to me at a meeting at ESPN and said, my name is Sarah Langs, and someday... I'm going to work on baseball tonight. And about two years later, she made her way in, and now she's become a national hero when it comes to baseball. It's been unbelievable. I never forget that as long as I live. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Tim. And while we're saying things that are wonderful, I want to (laughs) congratulate you on your third grandchild, the beautiful McKinley, born over the week, uh, at the end of the week, last week. How was your weekend? Well, it was great. So I'm a grandfather for the third time. It's a long story, Sarah, but I'll make it short. My son, Jeff, whose wife, Emily, had the baby, his birthday was last Wednesday on August the 9th. And that was the day McKinley was supposed to be born. And Jeffrey and Emily, his wife, have become big Phillies fans because they live in Philadelphia now. Emily's not a baseball fan, but now <laughs> she is. She loves the Phillies. So here they are waiting for the baby to come. And we were pretty sure the baby was going to be born on Jeffrey's 30th birthday while they're watching the Michael Lorenzen no-hitter. They missed by about four hours. McKinley came on August the 10th at 3.56 in the morning, so we missed it. But there they are in labor, watching the Phillies game and watching Michael Lorenzen pitch a no-hitter. It was absolutely priceless. That is a perfect Kirkton grandchild. I can't (laughs) wait for her to hear that story. From you one day, that is so, so perfect. I love it. And again, congrats to you, your family, and to Jeffrey, and of course, family as well. Now, of course, we're here to talk baseball. We will get into that. And I think even though Taylor is off today, we have to start with Cedric Mullins and the Orioles and that incredible game yesterday afternoon. 
So yesterday in the ninth inning, Cedric Mullins robs the home run. The next pitch, the next batter hits a home run way above his head, one that he couldn't possibly catch. Game goes actress. He hits the home run in the 10th inning, becomes the first guy in the last 10 years to rob a home run and hit one in the ninth inning or later. What is our takeaway about the Orioles in that game? Well, that was uh, just another of the remarkable things that happened this last week, Sarah. You've been all over this. So have I to some degree. Some of the amazing things have happened. But there it is again. A guy robs a homer and then the next inning gives him the lead with a homer. And, you know, with all the great young Oriole players that we see now, Adley Rutschman, of course, Gunnar Henderson, all these kids that are coming up. We can't forget that Cedric Mullins was the first really good player there during this time where they become such a good team. We can't forget how good a season he had two years ago. And this just shows again how athletic he is, fits right in the middle of that order again. And now they're at full strength now that he's back because defensively and the way he can produce uh, offensively, the Orioles in really good shape and just another great day for one of the best, young, exciting teams that we've seen in a long time. And a really important game to be able to win with Felix Batista not available. They ended up going to Shintaro Fujinami in the 10th inning to close it out, but to show that they can win, even though it got a little questionable, that they can win without him is really important. Headed to the playoffs and headed with some questionable pitching, perhaps. Absolutely. I love where the Orioles are. And Sarah, we cannot lose sight of the fact that two years ago, they finished 39 games out of fourth place. Only one other team in Major League history has ever finished that far behind the next worst team in the league or the division. And here it is two years later. They are leading the American League East. This is why baseball is the best game ever. Teams go from so good to so bad, so bad to so good, so quickly, sometimes without explanation. But in this case, that young talent for the Orioles speaks very loudly. And I do think it's worth mentioning what the Mariners have done lately. You know, as I was thinking over the weekend, okay, what am I talking to Timmy about on Monday? <laughs> Before that game, this was going to be a Mariners conversation. And even though they lost that game on Sunday, they've made this incredible push in the second half. This is what they did last year. For me, if I look at the standings right now, they're the one team not in playoff position right now they think could end up in the playoffs. What are you seeing from them? Yeah, they they have played exceptionally well the second half of the year. They are exceptional in one-run games. Their pitching is tremendous. George Kirby, who made the All-Star team, just gets better and better. Sarah, as you know, he, he throws a ball only when he wants to throw a ball. That's how good his command is. Luis Castillo's legitimate ace. They got pitching everywhere. Logan Gilbert. What they have to do, of course, is score a few more runs. Julio Rodriguez is starting to swing it a whole lot better. But let's not forget, this is when they took off last year, right about this time, and made a tremendous run. Those fans were going crazy down the stretch. 
I could see that happening again, but you're right, Sarah. A really good team is not going to make the playoffs in the American League, whether it's Toronto, Tampa Bay, Houston, Seattle. It's going to be a fabulous race, Texas, whatever. Um, but I really like where the Mariners are positioned right now because of the way they played and the pitching that they have. Absolutely. And I want to stay in the American League a little longer. So team that at this point, I think we've all uh, understood likely won't make the playoffs in the Angels, but we're still locked in to Shohei Otani every single game. The Angels announced yesterday he's going to skip a start. They say it's arm fatigue, no injury. He's still going to be DHing, but how do you think they approach Otani down the stretch? He's having an amazing season, but of course the team out of it now. How do you juggle that? Well, you have to be careful with Otani's health first and foremost. Uh, he's free agent at the end of the year. As we all know, the Angels are trying everything they can to get him signed. So when he says my arm's tired, then he doesn't pitch. When he says my I got a cramp in my hand, then he shouldn't hit. But he is... Amazing. You know, he went eight games without a home run and we're all going, oh, my gosh, what's happened to him? Nothing has happened to him. He had a homer yesterday, number 41. So I think the Angels are still obviously in a very difficult predicament here. But, Sarah, I'm like the only guy who believes that they still have a chance, maybe an outside chance to re-sign him because of his comfort level there, what they offer him, what he offers them. But the only way this is going to happen is to keep him healthy the rest of the way, because if he can pitch a little more and he can hit a little more, he's going to win the MVP probably unanimously in the American League. And that's what that's part of the Angels hope in keeping him is, look, you're, you're great. We need you. And maybe you need us, too. Yeah, I think he's the unanimous MVP if they shut him down today. Right. And they're not going to, and they better not, unless he's right. really hurting. But I think he already has that locked up. You know, I was watching the game yesterday, and I believe Wayne Randazzo referred to it as, oh, he's the unanimous MVP. Like, not even a question, not even waiting until November. We know this is going to happen. Absolutely. Well, he has been a joy to watch, and let's hope, like you said, we get to watch him the rest of the year. Absolutely. Now, one other sort of American League topic I wanted to get to before we switch to a few National League teams. This is going to be our crossover. So the Yankees yesterday, another team that I think we've probably settled on at this point, won't be making the postseason. They had a four-run lead in the ninth inning against Marlins, end up losing on a walk-off. This is not what we have seen from the Yankees in recent years. I know you were talking on baseball tonight about how long it has been since they finished below 500. There's two games above right now. What are we seeing from these Yankees? Well, I wasn't giving the Yankees a whole lot of chance to make the playoffs before yesterday, but yesterday was one was maybe their worst loss of the year. And you know, Sarah, they've lost a six-run lead twice this season. But this was a game on the road. Garrett Cole, their ace, they have to win when Garrett Cole pitches, given the rest of their rotation being either injured or ineffective. And to lose that game like that, to me, they're going to look back and say, 
Why didn't we make the playoffs? I think there are going to be a lot of reasons why, but they're going to look at, you know, August the 13th and say, well, that's the biggest reason is we lost that game. They had won 78 consecutive games up by four runs in the ninth inning. And as we know, Clay Holmes is a good relief pitcher, good closer. Their bullpen has been the best part of their team all year. And to lose a game like that, that was about as crushing a loss as they'll have this year. And now, of course, they get the privilege of going to play the Braves. So I I don't like where the Yankees are at all this year. And again, Sarah, the beauty of baseball. Who knew at the beginning of this season that the Yankees and the Mets probably aren't going to make the playoffs? I don't think anyone in their right mind would have thought there was any chance of that happening. Absolutely not. And I know you have your uh, circle games. I always love when you do those on baseball night. I wonder if we need, and I'm not a fan of negativity, but is there a an X game, something on the other side when you knew you were out of it? Maybe that's the thing for the Yankees. Well, my, my circle game philosophy is a circle game can mean something that can lead to something really good or lead to something really bad. It's the same thing. It's a circle. And I think you have to circle that game yesterday and say, all right, that's kind of where it ended for the 2023 Yankees. Now, could it be a circle game on the other side for the Marlins? They're in this fascinating position. They have a half game lead of the Cubs and Reds for that third ball card spot. They have a minus 40 run differential. We've only seen two teams make the playoffs with a run differential that bad. And one was them in the pandemic season, which basically isn't real life. The other was the 05 Padres. Can the Marlins make the playoffs? Yeah, and I didn't come around to this until maybe a couple of weeks ago. But again, you win a game like that. When a game that Garrett Cole starts, you get through to a really good bullpen. And I think it's quite appropriate, very symmetrical, Sarah, that Luisa Rice got the biggest hit in that game, a three-run double, which ran his average to, what, 367 now. It's unbelievable. Um, So, yeah, there's something special, I think, maybe going on in Miami because they had all sorts of opportunities this year to to not be good, and they got through it. I'm still not sure whether they're going to score enough runs, but then a day like yesterday when they score late like they did, and Jake Berger, I'm still not sure why the White Sox traded him. Sarah, I got a good look at him a couple games we did in the middle of June, and I love that guy. He is he is such a tough guy, such an energy guy, swings as hard as any man alive. He hits the ball as hard as almost anyone. He's gotten a bunch of big hits, and, of course, he got the walk-off hit yesterday. I like where the Marlins are. That doesn't mean I don't like the Cubs or the Reds, but bottom line is we're going down to the final week of the season with a bunch of races, and nobody can ask for anything more than that. Another good time for them, Sandel Contro with another complete game. In that series, he's starting to look like himself again. First few months of the season, something seemed off, whatever it was. But recently, he has been Cy Young Sandy. And certainly, if they're going to make the playoffs, he'll be involved like that. Now, I want to talk about the Braves. You mentioned them. They always come up. Whenever we talk about baseball, they say, 
it's impossible not to mention the Braves because even with a loss last night on Sunday baseball, they have this relentless offense. They lose the game, but even still, Matt Olson with a home run, and they have all of this scoring. The question lately has been the pitching. Yanni Trinos and then Colin McHugh kind of lost track of it a bit during the game last night. But overall, for me, the takeaway from this series wasn't the scoring. It was that their pitching mostly got back on track. Yeah, their their pitching is good. Now that Max Fried is back and pitching well again, Spencer Strider, of course, is a nightmare for every hitter who comes to the plate. They've fixed their bullpen to some degree with the, the moves they made at the trade deadline. They're going to get Kyle Wright back. I, I really like where the Braves pitching is right now, but let's face it, Sarah, it doesn't have to be the best pitching in the league because they're going to hit their way through any sort of issue. And I'm still staggered by that doubleheader that they played the other day. And the first three games of that Mets series, again, maybe this is more Mets related, sorry, but the Mets were outscored by 31 runs in a three-game span. No time in the history of the Mets if they ever had a minus 31 run differential for a three-game span. Let's not forget, Sarah, they played 300 baseball. That was their winning percentage from 62 to 65. They were indescribably bad. And that never happened even to the terrible Met team. So it, it just shows you again, though, what, what the Braves can do when Acuna's going and Olsen and Albies. It's just ridiculous. They have a real shot now to have six guys with 30 homers. Six guys with 30 homers. No team has ever done that and nothing would surprise me they had more homers at the all-star break than any team ever and i think they're going to break the record of 307 homers by the 2019 twins that's where the braves are headed relentless from one to nine and i know this stat got thrown around a lot over the weekend but they sold those four guys who have played in every game in Acuna, Albies, Riley, and Olsen. We'll see if that continues today. Ozzy Albies left with a cramping in his hamstring uh, late in the game yesterday, so we'll see. But knowing the Braves, it would have to be very severe and knowing him for him to not be in their next lineup, but they're the first team since the 1944 Reds. To have guys play in each of their first 117 games, have four guys do that. So the question is, the Braves, the Dodgers, excuse me, have won a trade. Are they even remotely in the same stratosphere? Are they on a collision course for the NLCS? What are we seeing here? Well, the Dodgers are 12-1 and in August. Julio Urias was... Great yesterday. No walks, 12 strikeouts. He, of course, has to return to his form from last year and previous years if they're going to make a run at the Braves. Look, let's be clear. The Braves are the best team in baseball, period. But the Dodgers, with the way they've played, especially lately, and the way that they can score runs. I mean, come on, Sarah. They're going to have they're going to have four guys, maybe with thirty homers. They have two of the five, four best players in the league, and Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts. And even though their starting pitching ERA is on pace to be the worst since they moved to L.A. in 1958, and yet they are still running away with the division. And I think. 
they do indeed pose a threat to the Braves. I repeat, the Braves are the best team, but anything can ha happen in October. And if there's one team that can knock off the Braves, I would put the Dodgers on the top of that list. Absolutely. I mean, I think the other team I know I was talking with Buster uh, on Friday. I, it is a long standing thing on this podcast. I never know what day of the week it is ever. <laughs> On Friday, we are talking, I was saying maybe the Phillies, interesting to see. I mean, obviously, a lot of that was coming off the Reds and, and seeing how strong their pitching is. How do you feel about their relative strength compared to those two? Yeah, I did the Phillies game uh, Saturday on the radio. So I saw them Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And going into Saturday, they had hit 20 homers in their previous seven games. No Phillies team has ever hit more than 20 homers in any seven-game stretch in the history of the franchise. Going into Saturday, they had scored 75 runs and hit 24 homers in August. Major league highs in both. Even the Braves didn't do that. But, of course, they ran into Pablo Lopez, who was great on Saturday, Sonny Gray, who was great on Sunday. But I still – I know the Phillies are going to the playoffs because – they can really hit the ball out of the ballpark, which we're starting to see quite a bit now. But more important, like you said, you know, Taiwan Walker didn't pitch well on Saturday. He's got 13 wins. Michael Lorenzo has been great in his two starts. Uh, Wheeler and Nola. Nola's got to be better, but I think they're a dangerous team. They remind me of the same team that got hot at this time last year and went to the World Series. But again, I can't put them ahead of the Dodgers, needless to say, the Braves in the National League at this point. That trade turner turnaround. And again, having Liam Castellanos in the stands rooting for his father, they do have that intangible sort of quality. So we'll have to say. Right. That Wednesday night game, Sarah, Wes Wilson got his first major league homer in his first major league at bat. Nick Cassianos hit his 200th home run of his career, and Michael Lorenzen pitched a no-hitter. Rob Thompson told me on Saturday, I've never seen a regular season game to match that one. And Rob Thompson has been around for a long time and seen a lot of stuff. I wrote a story on MLB.com with, you know, fun facts from the no-hitter. And I mentioned Weston Wilson because it was the first time that we had seen a guy hit his first ground run and a guy pitch a no-hitter for the same team in the same game. And I get an email from a Philly fan saying, hey, you forgot about Castellanos. No, I didn't. It just had <laughs> nothing to do with the no-hitter. They had a season's worth of milestones in one right. game. That's nobody's fault. Yeah, that was that was absolutely an incredible night. And and Sarah, this whole note about the four pitchers who went to Fullerton High School who pitched in the major league look, this can only happen in baseball. Mike Warren, who won nine games in his career, but one was a no-hitter. Steve Busby, who threw two no-hitters. Michael Lorenzen and Walter Johnson, the greatest pitcher of all time, all went to Fullerton High School. They all pitched in the major leagues, and they all threw a no-hitter. Slap me on the forehead. I thought, this can't be true, and it is. Only in baseball can this happen. And you went to 
Walter Johnson High School, which Ravi, I ask Ravi all the time, I say, have I ever told you I went to Walter Johnson High School and he just rolls his eyes and he said, yeah, about 10 million times. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. I could talk to you all day, Timmy. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Enjoy the family time. Enjoy the grandkids. Enjoy the baseball. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you soon, okay? Awesome. Thanks, Timmy. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. I'm so, so grateful to be joined by my colleague at MLB.com, Natalie Alonzo. Natalie, how are you doing today? I'm good, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I wanted to have you on because at the top of the show, I recounted my three story baseball as the best moments of the weekend. And there was one more I wanted to get in. So I knew if I had you on, I could kind of get my fourth. And that fourth one was Fernando Valenzuela's number being retired by the Dodgers. Now, for anyone who is listening who doesn't know, you've written a children's book to come out soon about Fernando developed well I know you feel very passionately about his impact on baseball as a whole and his cultural impact so we know about Fernando Mania we know the stats but what I really want you to help illustrate is what was his impact in the Latino community and why is he such an important figure from that perspective yeah and I think everything I have to say will sound familiar to you since you and I have had conversations about this over the years but you know what really struck me about this weekend is how much Fernando Valenzuela still, you know, he's still adored in Southern California. It's been, you know, more than four decades at this point. And it was a reminder of how much he means to the Mexican and the Mexican-American community in LA. And obviously it started with performance, right? With that eight game win streak to start his career and all those shutouts, because that's what's put him on the map. But, you know, baseball doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of society and history. And we're talking about a large Latino community, predominantly Mexican-American, that hadn't exactly been welcomed with open arms in Southern California. You know, they'd been alienated and, and excluded from the community there. And so, and they didn't have a, a reason to be invested in baseball. And so here comes Fernando, not trying to be a hero, you know, just being himself. And it was extremely powerful. He was Mexican. He had indigenous roots. He spoke Spanish. He was one of them. And so it not only made people in, you know, in that community feel like baseball could be theirs and they could be a part of baseball culture, but I think it really made people feel like, hey, they belonged in LA too. And, you know, they were proud to be who they were. And I think that that's the enduring legacy of, of Fernando Mania. What led you to really learn more about this? Obviously, you were not 
not necessarily uh you know in the stands during Fernando Mania you're a bit younger than that so what led you to realize how important he was to make sure you knew as much as you could about all of this yeah you know it's funny when I interviewed Dusty Baker worked on a story here at MLB.com a few years ago for the 40th anniversary of Fernando Mania and I interviewed Dusty Baker over the phone and he goes you weren't born yet were you so <laughs> yes I was not there but I think you know just being Latina myself in baseball I've always been you know just aware of his impact and I remember in 2017 I was in LA I was covering I think it was the NLDS and I don't get starstruck easily you know that we can't afford to do that and also do our jobs well and so I can count on you know one hand the moments I've been starstruck and it was when Fernando Valenzuela came into the press box and sat down at the table where I was working and I you know I just I couldn't believe it I was and I know people there see him all the time but for me you know just knowing what he meant to this community and that's kind of where the idea came from it was from that moment when I encountered him and realized oh my gosh I'm sitting next to Fernando Valenzuela and I think there's no children's book out there so I think it's an important story that we want to preserve for the next generation absolutely and with that and with the Roberto Clemente book that you've written as well why children's books why are you making sure that these topics are addressed to that community the youngsters out there yeah I mean I and this is you know not to flatter myself too much but I like to think that children's books are the most important books out there because when you know children their minds are still malleable and we can teach them you know, how to see the world. And we talk in children's books, uh, we talk about windows and mirrors, right? So books should be windows so you can see other people and mirrors so you can see yourself. And so when I write for children, I'm keeping that in mind. You know, we want Mexican-American children, Latino children to see themselves being protagonists and being agents of change and progress. Um, And we want other children who are not Latino to also see those figures excelling. So that's why, that's why children's books. Back to Fernando for one second. Did you have a favorite moment of the weekend? You know, they celebrated him throughout the weekend. You know, I watch every game, so I know he's always there. He works on the broadcast side, on the Spanish side. So Dodgers fans are used to seeing him, but obviously him being on the field, him being the object of being honored. Did you have a favorite moment Uh, at all? I believe it was an, I think it was uh, like a drone display or something like that that they had in the sky and that for me was incredible because again you know if you look at Fernando's maybe the the whole of his career you might not not think that you know he was of that stature but it really speaks to just his impact on the organization that goes so much beyond you know stats or a single season or world series or anything like that I mean you don't do that for just anyone I think you and I have had this conversation a lot, but the whole thing conversation. His stats obviously don't fully get him there, the search of the career, no question. But I do think with everything you've said, there is an argument for a a baseball life, a baseball impact. And obviously, neither of us has any control over that in these categories. But do you think we see him in there one day? 
in some form? I mean, I think it's certainly possible. I think we've seen, you know, players who, you know, weren't voting in eventually make it, right? We saw Mini Minoso eventually made it in after different people kind of educated others about who he was. So I do think, you know, there are rules, but rules can be changed. And yeah, I think he absolutely, you know, there's an argument about what the Hall of Fame should be. Is it just for the best players or is it to tell the story of the sport, right? And that's a long-standing debate. We're not going to solve that one today. I happen to lean in the latter camp where I really do think that I think about how powerful it would be for that community to have him in the Hall of Fame and have him represented there. And I think it's totally okay if he's in a different category than people who got in on account of just their stats. And as we know, stats aren't infallible either. You know, the game has changed over the years. There's all these different factors that affect stats, right? So stats, I think we need to look at them not just being, you know, black and white. There's always context, right? And so I think the same thing applies here. We've talked about Felipe Alou as well as someone, you know, as a pioneer who really had such a profound and fundamental impact on the sport. So I really do hope eventually we're going to see some kind of category where we can acknowledge their contributions as well beyond the numbers. I really hope so. I mean, there's so many figures who have been so important throughout baseball history and throughout American history. I mean, he is a cultural figure, an important historical figure, not just for baseball, but as you said, for the intersection between baseball and its community. So hopefully one day there is a way to honor that in some way. And as you said, there's so many others who could be on that list. Thank you so much for joining me. This was awesome to get to talk with you. I was so happy when I thought of this on Saturday and that you agreed on Sunday when I asked you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's always great to chat with you. Over the weekend, Michael Harris II talked with Roxy Bernstein and Doug Glanville of ESPN Radio Give a Lesson. All right, Kev, with the Brave Center fielder, Michael Harris. And first off for you, how much fun are you having with this group this year? Uh, a lot of fun. I mean, we're winning games and, and you see the guys that are putting up some, some crazy numbers. So it's exciting to be out there and play with them and, and win, win a lot of ball games. Can you describe year two and uh, talk about the second year or the sophomore year? I mean, what adjustments have you found that have made your game heightened to the next level? Yeah, the first first half of the season really didn't go as, as I, I planned. I had some injuries. Um, then I started out slow once I got back from the injuries. But uh, once I started to feel 100% like myself, uh, everything started to get going. And, and I'm, I'm starting to feel like myself full time now. And uh, my numbers are back up to where where they are. And I'm having a lot of fun. So, uh it's been a challenging year, but at the end, I still learned a lot and got to overcome a lot of failures. When you look around and see a bunch of these guys that have come up through this organization, you're the kind of the, the next one that this club is invested in. What, is, what does that mean for you when you see a lot of stability with this organization and they've entrusted in you and they believe in you? Yeah, it means a lot that they even gave me an opportunity to be here uh, long term um, after just being in the league for a little over a month and they I guess they saw long term that they, they wanted me here and and that I could help the team. So that's all I'm trying to do is, is stay here, help the team win, and, and have fun. Well, the Braves you know, have a culture of playing every day, trying to get out there and posting up. You know, Swanson, Freeman, even though they're not here, they established that. Riley, you have that feeling with Matt Olson. What does that come, how does that play into your game, the idea of being able to go out there and post? Yeah, I mean, uh, just knowing just knowing you're going to be out there playing every day, I guess, give you some stability. Uh, 
I mean, of course, every day isn't going to go as planned, but that's why you're in there the next day that, um, I guess, redeem yourself. And, and we have a lot of faith in this lineup. And one through nine, everybody's going to be out there pretty much every day. Um, and, yeah, we got a lot of confidence, and we, we really love our lineup. Michael Harris was also mic'd up on Sunday Baseball and said, my favorite thing I've heard on a broadcast all year about his favorite player when he was in high school. Obviously, Acuna, he was my favorite player in high school, and now now I'm playing alongside him. And uh, the good thing the good thing about this uh, lineup is everybody's pretty much different, and you can take different bits and pieces to help your game. So, um, yeah, my I guess my my straight up answer would just be Acuna. Sure. JJ Romuto caught him with Tom Hart. Check it out. All right, Kevin, thanks for JT Romuto. Um, let's go back a few days. Not your first time, but being behind the plate for a no-hitter, at what point, or if any, do you start to feel the pressure back there? Yeah, I think, uh, in my opinion, you probably start thinking about it as a catcher at least. I probably start thinking about the possibility of no-hitter around like the fifth or sixth inning. That's when um, you start your senses, your senses are a little more heightened. You start thinking about every pitch a little bit more. You start thinking about, you know, do we have walks to play with? How many pitches do we have? Uh, stuff like that starts creeping your head, I'd say, around the fifth or sixth inning. It was really interesting uh, hearing about it after the fact that just changing his changeup grip a little bit made that pitch so much better. At what point did you realize that the changeup was going to be more effective than maybe you saw the first time around? It's actually funny. Uh, in the bullpen, uh, after he threw his – I noticed how good it was in the bullpen and, and how good his hand speed was, and he was, he was controlling it really well. So after the bullpen, I asked him, I said, hey, your changeup looked really good right there. He said, yeah, honestly, he goes, I tweaked with uh, my grip a little bit. I talked to Caleb the last week. He showed me some things on video. So, like, it's kind of interesting to look back and see just how good his changeup was in the game. Uh, he had supreme confidence in, in his bullpen and, and from the work they had done before um, that that, that kind of gave me more confidence to call a little bit more often throughout the game. This guy's still brand new to the organization. As a catcher, what is the learning curve in getting to know how to make a pitcher comfortable when, when you don't know them very well. Yeah, um, I feel like with Lorenzen, it's been a pretty smooth transition just because I was, a, I was able to watch you know, five or six of his outings before he came to us and kind of get a feel for what he likes to do. But then also just watching his work and how he, go, he, go, he watches a lot of film. I can see him crunching the numbers. So I'm doing the same thing on my own. So I know that the scouting report that I'm going through, he's already looked at the exact same information. He knows the hitters, ins and outs. He knows where he wants to throw certain pitches. So I feel like him doing his homework and knowing the hitters as well has helped us just to be on the same page that much more. Let's talk big picture about this team, what you guys accomplished the last half of last year, where you are now versus maybe you were early in the season. Uh, is there any continuity between second half of last year and what you guys have put together the last month or so? I think so. I think this, this team has a lot of similarities to the one last year. Um, I just think we're, we're starting to play our best baseball at the right time and it's kind of the same thing that happened to us last year we got hot in uh, the end of the first half and into the second half we started playing our best brand of baseball and I feel like we're kind of doing the same thing this year obviously our as a as a whole we didn't quite meet expectations in the first half we played okay we kind of hung around but we don't feel like we played our best baseball yet and um, we feel like we're kind of right now starting to catch our stride and um, this is the time you want to get hot as a team so hope we can continue that and carry it into the postseason We've got Taiwan Walker tonight. Give us a, a little insight into specifically with him, his split finger. What makes it so effective, and how does it need to be set up to be impactful? Uh, for me, it, it, it starts with his fastball command. Um, he's got to be able to 
establish his fastball at the bottom of the strike zone and um, be able to get the hitters thinking about that a little bit, and that makes the split that much better because the split's going to be an elite pitch no matter what. But when he's able to command his fastball and um, get their eyesight to where they have to respect the bottom of the zone, that's when his split really excels, and uh, that's when he's been able to have the most success with it. So for me, if he can establish his fastball early, command it at the bottom of the strike zone, then the split really becomes that much better. JT, thanks so much for your time. Good luck tonight. Thanks for having me. Bleacher Tweets. All right, Sarah, it is time for Bleacher Tweets. Our first one comes from at Atypical Faith. Thinking about how Blue Jays fans bombarded Fenway last week, probably karma for all the times I went to Camden Yards in my Red Sox gear, wondering what teams typically get trounced by visiting team fans. All right. I mean, first of all, trounce feels a bit heavy. Hopefully (laughs) that never happens anywhere. But I do think of, you know, not sure anymore. But again, as uh, Sarah referred to, uh Camden Yards of the last few years before this year certainly Red Sox fans and Yankees fans we would see but I think that tide has turned because the Orioles are so good and their fans have a really good reason to show out you know I think of um the Blue Jays and Mariners series uh right after the All-Star break maybe there were a lot of Blue Jays fans in the sands in Seattle. Of course, Seattle, not that far from Canada, not near Toronto, but certainly near the country. So I'm sure that plays a role. And I always think it's fun when you see teams where the uh, fan base shows up a lot in their spring training homes. So seeing lot of Giants fans in Arizona, Yankees fans in Florida, what have you. Those uh, spring training areas tend to sort of attract fans who are not necessarily living where the team is. Yeah, Taylor lucked out that I forgot the Yankees hat when he lost (laughs) the trivia at Camden Yards. Next up comes from DJ Beef Beef. With the long list of talented rookie pitchers this year, who impresses you the most? You know, it's interesting. We've had a lot of really great starts to careers. We have Bryce Miller, Bobby Miller. Um, We've had so many guys. Obviously, someone like Kodai Senga is also a rookie, even though, of course, he's been a professional pitcher in Japan for a while before being here. One guy who really stands out to me is Andrew Abbott, who I think has been a standing force for that Reds uh, Red's rotation when they need it. And, of course, I see Sarah nodding her head because she's got to be Team Abbott, anyone who's an Abbott, right? I was just about to say, my namesake, he's really carrying the Abbott name proud. (laughs) Exactly. Our last one comes from Andrew Campbell at Real Cam Drew. Hey, Sarah, are teams these days forgetting the value of veteran presence and good leadership? Whether it's White Sox in Chicago or the Yankees missing Gardner and CeCe and now the Tampa Bay Rays situation, it seems like big problems keep popping up for younger players. Um. I don't know if that's entirely true. I mean, we also see so many amazing young players across the league right now. I think of a team like the Braves that has, you know, young players leading, but you can be young and be a veteran. 
Well, the Kenya Jr. debuted in 2018. So even though he's very young and he was Michael Harris's favorite player in high school, he is a veteran because he's been around long enough. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to appreciate the players who've been in the league while. And I think different teams just have different uh, constitutions of players right now. All right, everyone, that is it for Bleacher Tweets and this Sarah Lang's Takeover podcast. She nailed it. She crushed it. Um, Tune in again later this week when we have Buster and Taylor back. And make sure you all use hashtag Bleacher Tweets to send them a message that how dare they both leave us. But thank you because we got a Sarah Lang's Takeover episode. That's all for today. My thanks to Tim, Natalie, Sarah, Bruce, and of course, Foster for having me do this. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.